to the program. And my guest is author Larry Tai. Uh, uh, Larry is the author of Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. Let me just hold this book up so people can see it. What a dramatic cover. That's kind of the famous picture of McCarthy, isn't it, anyways? It is. Finger pointing and scowling. He was not a pleasant man. To, I think that the part of his problem, actually, is that he was not good in the media, especially television. So he was brilliant in print and on TV. It proved his undoing. Had he been a more controlled figure, less of a finger pointer and scowler, less of a town rowdy kind of figure... He might have lasted a lot longer and not gone down in the Army McCarthy hearings, but the camera was not his friend. Right. And it was still early days of television because we remember the Nixon-Kennedy debate, and, and Nixon did not look good on television. Um, just one of the interesting things we found out about that later was that Kennedy had people in advance set up the lighting in such a way that it would shine on him, and Kennedy looked, and, and Nixon looked kind of shadowy and now when they have those debates both sides have people there in advance you know to try to make sure that nobody's kind of trying to fix it for the other side so that's true and when i was doing my research on my bobby kennedy bio i found out that bobby kennedy when richard nixon at the last minute asked him how he looked bobby said you look marvelous <laughs> and the and that convinced him not to go do anything else with makeup and the um and it was wonderful kennedy uh bag of dirty tricks. Richard Nixon said that he learned more over time about dirty tricks from Bobby Kennedy than from anybody else in the world. Oh, well, back then, of course, this was, um, it's, it was actually more, more undertone than anything. I mean, the Kennedys tried to claim that Nixon was insane because he had seen a psychiatrist or a, psych a psychologist. So that's true. And over the course of the campaign, Bobby Kennedy and Papa Joe Kennedy hid the fact that uh, joke that Jack Kennedy had all of these health issues and was very seriously ill. And it was actually Bobby Kennedy and more importantly, his widow, Ethel Kennedy, who inspired me to look at Joe McCarthy when she said that Joe McCarthy might be a monster to much of America, but to the Kennedys, he was just plain good fun. And the idea of Joe McCarthy as good fun was counterintuitive enough that I became intrigued. Well, well, Joe McCarthy was very close friends with the Kennedys. I mean, wasn't he? Didn't he date one of the daughters? I think he dated Pat, Patricia. So he dated two of the daughters, Patricia and Eunice. He tried to date their younger sister, Jean, who decided he was too old. He helped launch, in many ways, Jack Kennedy's career by staying the heck out of Massachusetts in 1952 when young Congressman Jack Kennedy was making a bid for Senate. Mm -hmm. And Joe Kennedy, Papa Joe Kennedy, had given enough money to Joe McCarthy that he could pick up the phone and say, when Henry Cabot Lodge, the incumbent senator and your fellow Republican, calls you and asks you to come and campaign on his behalf in Massachusetts, all I want you to do is not say anything in favor of Jack Kennedy. Just don't come. And Joe McCarthy stayed away because Joe Kennedy realized that having McCarthy in Massachusetts with his incredible appeal to Catholic Americans was enough to potentially tip the balance away from Jack Kennedy. And Jack Kennedy ended up winning that year by 3% when Dwight Eisenhower, the Republican presidential nominee, carried Massachusetts by 9%. So it is very easy to imagine 
that had Joe McCarthy shown up, Jack Kennedy wouldn't have been a senator and wouldn't have been a president. Yeah, I mean, these are, these are um, kind of a, a hindsight view of, of historical events here. Uh, Larry, the, um, I get the sense that, um, you know, in, in a sense, maybe it's a classic definition of a demagogue, but Joe McCarthy really didn't have any particularly strong ideological base or orientation. He seemed to be very much the classic opportunist. And to the degree that he did have any any discernible ideology, he was sort of left of center. I mean, he certainly was kind of at least a moderate, and he came from a, a moderate state, and he actually uh, took the Senate seat of, of the, the La Follette uh, dynasty in Wisconsin, which was, which was uh, you know, progressive, really. And um, I guess, and, and he was very good on things like civil rights and generally kind of a mainstream guy because we often think of him today as being right-wing or conservative. So he was both. He started out life uh, running for district attorney as a New Deal-loving, FDR-loving registered Democrat. And he realized that in his part of rural Wisconsin, running as a Democrat was a no-win situation. So sometime, probably in the middle of the night when nobody was looking, he went and changed his party registration, not just a Republican, but in order to take on the Titan when he ran in 1946 to take on the Titan of Wisconsin politics, Robert LaFollette Jr., right. he became the uh, standard bearer for what were known in Wisconsin as stalwart Republicans, the most right-wing part of the party. Okay. So that suggested if he could move from liberal Democrat without blinking an eye to right-wing Republican, it suggested what Joe McCarthy wanted more than anything was to win. And what he did when he got power, like most demagogues, was something he hadn't thought a whole lot about. And if that kind of party switching and grasp for power sounds familiar, it ought to. Well, it does. I mean, it's, isn't this what oftentimes both parties do when they're running in their primaries? They, they go further to the left or the right because that's the base. And then once they get to the general election, they then switch back to the middle because that's the nation. So that is true. And he was actually on exactly the opposite political trajectory from his pal, Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy started out life as a Joe McCarthy, cold warrior kind of political figure and ended up becoming the iconic liberal he was when he ran for president and was assassinated in 1968. Joe McCarthy was going from Democrat to conservative Republican. And they had this magical moment of coming together in 1953, when Bobby went to work for Joe and for six long months was his enthusiastic backer. Mm -hmm. And another one of those what ifs in history we might want to ask is what if instead of Roy Cohn becoming Joe McCarthy's chief enabler, chief of staff and chief enabler, Bobby Kennedy, who was second in line for that job, had become Roy, uh, Joe McCarthy's the alter ego. Right. I mean, that's a good question. But I think back then, Bobby Kennedy was probably almost as ruthless as, as uh, Roy Cohn. I mean, he had that side to him, he seems. Uh, so the one word that Bobby Kennedy could never escape in his career was the word ruthless. Uh -huh. And that was clearly the word that if you had to pick a single word to characterize Roy Cohn, other than maybe arrogant, it would have been ruthless. 
And the the uh, general cause at hand here, and I got this sense from your book, the the exposure of people in the administration who were, you know, working for Stalin and favoring Stalin. And, and in that sense, in the de facto sense, most of them probably were also working for Hitler during the Hitler-Stalin pact period. Let's remember that the first two years of World War II, before the United States was in it, Hitler and Stalin were allies, and the Communist Party in the United States was both pro-Hitler and Stalin. They were trying to, they stood, they allegedly were the peace party because they wanted to keep the United States out of the war and because that helped both Hitler and Stalin. Then they took a 180 degree turn when Hitler double-crossed Stalin in 1941 with the um, invasion of Russia. Yes, so there's no question that the big boogeyman back in 1950 when Joe McCarthy launched his crusade with Stalin. There is no question that the Soviets posed a real threat to the world and to America. And there is also no question that there were few people in the Senate or in public life who knew less about how to find a red at the State Department or anywhere else. There was a joke that was told about Joe McCarthy that I think reflected a whole element of truth. And the joke was that he could have been dropped in the middle of Red Square on May Day and not known how to find a communist. Most of the 24 carat spies were gone before Joe McCarthy came along right. and the lists that he enthusiastically waved were recycled ones. And I think that it could be argued that he did more damage to the anti-communist cause than he did to the communist cause during his four and a half year reign of power. Well, just as a, to, again, like talk a, a little bit about the background to, to McCarthy. Um, the, uh, the House Committee on Un-American Activities was actually set up before World War II by, the Dick, by uh, Congressman Dick Stein and McCormick to investigate Nazis and did so. And um, there was also even some question about whether the British were spying as well, the Stevenson uh, question. And then it was after World War II and the defeat of Hitler that they shifted their attention to the Soviets. And they really did, as you say, discover and uncover the big uh, pro-Soviet agents inside the government. You had Whitaker Chambers, the famous trial of the century with Alger Hiss, Harry Dexter White, the assistant secretary of the treasury, and a long list of other people that were very close to Roosevelt, including people who actually were living in the White House during the Roosevelt administration. They had all been uncovered. They had all fled the country. There were several who actually moved to China in the case of the Coe brothers. And, um, you know, I think it was uh, Laughlin Curry went back to Canada. They had left. They were gone. And the issue was kind of passe at that point when McCarthy jumped in with both hands. And yeah, he brought discredit to what I think was otherwise an important uh, movement, an important function anyways, uh, and that is to expose this. So can I take you back to the day that McCarthy launched his crusade to give a sense to your listeners of what an opportunist and a cynic he was? Um, he showed up in the town of Wheeling, West Virginia on February 9th, 1950 to give the famous Lincoln Dinner speech. And that's a speech that Republicans all over America used their patron saint Abe Lincoln's birthday as a chance to raise money and raise enthusiasm for the party. McCarthy, who was a backbench senator, 
who looked like he was on his way to being a one-term senator, was invited not to New York or Chicago, to Boston or Washington where those cities that really mattered. He was invited to Wheeling, West Virginia. He shows up with a briefcase that has two speeches. One is a snoozer of a speech on national housing policy, which was something he actually knew a bit about. And if he had delivered that speech like he thought he might, you and I 70 years later wouldn't be here talking about Joe McCarthy because he wouldn't have mattered. Mm -hmm. Instead, he reached into that briefcase and pulled out a sheaf of papers that he was looking at almost certainly for the first time. And he waved them around as he was reading his speech written by a journalist, edited by his staffers, never read before the fact by Joe McCarthy, who wasn't even sure he'd ever give the speech. He had in his hand what he said was a list of 205 spies hiding behind all the pillars of the State Department. These were, he said, reds that were Soviets that President Truman should have known about. Now, what he had in his hand that night, we're not quite sure, but what we know it wasn't was a list of 205 spies at the State Department. But that didn't matter. Mm -hmm. The press loved the story. He was not just saying there were traitors. He was counting the traitors and naming them or saying he was going to name them. And within two days, Joe McCarthy was on the front page of every newspaper in America. Within two days, his crusade and what would eventually become known as McCarthyism was off and running, and he never looked back. And I think what he did was what the Senate, his fellow senators very quickly proclaimed it as a fraud and a hoax. Not because there probably weren't spies still around somewhere. It was just that Joe McCarthy had no idea who they were and he didn't much care. Mm. I mean, it kind of probably once he got that kind of media attention, I mean, this happens to a lot of politicians and people in public life. The experience is so intoxicating that he just... Uh, he wrote it and he continued to write it as long as it happened. He didn't care. Uh, now, yeah. So he didn't care. And he was also partly brilliant enough and partly cynical enough that it wasn't an accident that he chose a place like Wheeling, West Virginia to unleash this crusade. He was smart enough to know that the only reporters who would be there were the local reporter for the Wheeling Intelligencer newspaper and a local AP reporter. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't know who to call for comment in Washington. They would just take what he said and run with it. He also didn't do this as a lunch speech when reporters might have had time to check in with their colleagues in Washington and ask who to, who to make a telephone call to. But if you gave it as a dinner speech, minutes before these reporters had to file their deadline stories, you were playing on the way the press operated to ensure that your story would make page one and any response from the other side would make page 24 the next day. And McCarthy knew, like playing a fiddle, just how to play the press. Well, I mean, um, you know, it, it, you bring up also uh, President Truman that, in fact, Truman had already been a, a pretty strongly anti-Soviet in the same way that actually Woodrow Wilson was at the end of World War One, when he sent an expedition to Russia, people don't really know that that short history, and sent uh, anarchists packing. I mean, put them on a boat and sent them out of the country, um, including Emma Goldman, who um, you know later expressed regret for her involvement. 
in that whole episode where on June, on June 6th, 1919, there was anarchist bombings in six cities at people's houses, including the house of um, Attorney, Attorney General Amos from Palmer. Mm -hmm. And his neighbor, Franklin Roosevelt, came over to help him after the bomb. Uh, you know, so in a sense, Truman reacted as well. He had a loyalty oath, uh, which I think was a reasonable thing to expect. I mean, when people work for the public sector, when they're paid by taxpayers, you would expect them to take a basic oath to support the Constitution of the United States and not be part of any organization that wants to subvert the Constitution of the United States. It's sort of like when you work for a private company, you take a non-disclosure agreement or you agree to be loyal to that company. Um, and that rooted out, I think it was like 500 people from the federal uh, pay, you know, payroll. So McCarthy, by the time he came around, he was really dealing with the the kind of the, the dregs of it. I mean, the, the people, the leftovers. He was. So as you point out, the House on American Activities under Martin Dyes had been out doing this for a long time. Truman had been doing it. And McCarthy came late, knew nothing. And yet there was something about his cowboy antics that we don't call it Trumanism. We don't call it Dyism. We call it McCarthyism because he understood whether it was appealing to the press or appealing to the public, how to do it in a way that by 1954, he was the second most popular public figure in America, trailing only Dwight Eisenhower. A full 50% of Americans thought he was doing a great job. Well, you know, American history, and of course, any history, both public and private, are filled with demagogues. Um, and before I get into my next thought, I'd like you to define, Larry, what you consider to be a demagogue. So I could give you a long definition that involved everything from the fact that in lieu of solutions, a demagogue points fingers, that when one manufactured charge is proven hollow, they lob a fresh bombshell. Uh, there are all kinds of decision, uh, all kinds of definitions we could talk about demagogues going back to the Greek, um, the derivation of the term. But I think one word defines it more than anything, and that is the word bully. And the first line of my book gets at I think what you're talking about, and it is a very short line. It is this is a book about America's love affair with bullies. And we've been in love with demagogues and bullies since the founding of the Republic. What distinguishes Joe McCarthy is he lasted longer and did it more compellingly, all the things that a demagogue does, that he became the archetype, the embodiment of the ones who came before and the archetype of the ones who came after. And, and I want to talk about why that is, but I think it's safe to say that demagoguery, as it were, comes in all different colors, and it's something that exists in nature. It's, you know, people come up, they, they're able to um, ride high and usually falsify an issue for their own personal advantage, and then they blow up, you know, because people eventually see through the falseness of it. And um, in this country, I think we've generally been fortunate in that ideological demagogues have never really had much of a run. I mean, you, you can point to people like Yui Long or, or the um, anti-Semitic uh, Father Coughlin, both of whom you could say were, quote, progressive demagogues. And they did have an ideology, but they didn't last. And they never really gained a national position of, uh, of influence or, or legal power. And uh, McCarthy was not 
either of that type. He was not an ideologue. He was simply trying to exploit an issue. And I would suggest that it was overall a good issue. He wasn't exploiting something that was a bad issue. And I suppose one of the positive elements that might have come out of that is that the American people became more aware of the nature of communism. And, uh, you know, they were able to contrast that system with the American system, even though he was not the right messenger for it. Maybe it took some of that to, to get that message across because, you know, before that, nobody would listen to a nut guy like Whitaker Chambers or anyone like that. McCarthy was, was in a position of influence. He was a senator and he could use the power. Yes. So I want to push back a bit on that. And I want to push back on, number one, whether he was good in exposing this issue. And as I mentioned before, I think he did the anti-communist cause um, a whole lot of damage. That, yes. that McCarthyism and the whole idea of the recklessness of what he was doing as it became exposed eventually ended up meaning that people assumed that if you were anti-communist, you were reckless and you weren't out there looking and finding real communists and looking at real proof. And I think that McCarthy did the cause a, a, a disservice, but he was also, I argue in my book, that there was substantial evidence that in addition to being anti-red and being anti-gay, that he might also, and I believe he was anti-Semitic. And I think he showed it in a number of ways. He took on as an early cause, the year before he launched his crusade against communism, he defended the perpetrators of the worst massacre during World War II of American soldiers, the so-called Malmedy Massacre, part of the Battle of the Bulge, where a couple, where 150 American troops had held up a white surrender flag and the Nazis and SS Panzer unit had mowed them down with their flag. And this was something that was an outrageous incident where the perpetrators were after the war tracked down, part of the Nuremberg trials. The only person in Congress who took it upon themselves to defend the perpetrators was Joe McCarthy. The only person who went after the prosecutors and said, so many of you are Jewish and therefore can't be objective about this, that that's one reason we have to call into question the verdicts. But it wasn't just that. It was that a disproportionate number of his targets when he went after the U.S. military were Jewish and such a disproportionate number that the Anti-Defamation League came in and investigated and said something smells wrong here. When he was talking to his friends, McCarthy used slurs like Heeb and like Sheeney to describe Jews. And I think while I always want to give him the benefit of the doubt that he might not, wanted, might not have given his targets, there is enough evidence about his anti-Semitism that we have to raise a question. And whether he was doing it for polemical reasons or personal reasons or whatever his motives were, the result was that that became part of this Eastern elite establishment that he went after. So he viewed the elite establishment as Jewish or, or? That, so he, he didn't like Harvard, he didn't like Wall Street, and part of the easy um, scapegoats as you were sort of slurring all of that was to add 
Jews the same way Father Coughlin did in his anti-Semitic radio broadcasts and the way a lot of McCarthy's supporters, when you look at his big money supporters from places like Texas, which were there in the files that I saw that McCarthy's family gave me the first and exclusive look at all of his personal and professional papers, you saw that among his biggest backers were not just Texas oil tycoons, but Texas anti-Semitic oil tycoons. And your friends say something about who you are. Yeah, I mean, look, that's, that's a very serious accusation. I mean, I think that um, I'm not sure that he's publicly associated with anti-Semitism. And... He's not. He's absolutely not, which is why I think some of this new evidence that was there in his own files and elsewhere is something we at least have to look at. And in the book, I don't proclaim him an anti-Semite. I proclaim him worthy of questions based on his own words and actions. And I think we have to raise that question. No, I mean, I, uh, certainly. I mean, uh, there was a lot of anti-Semitism to go around back then. I mean, you could say that Franklin Roosevelt was an anti-Semite based upon comments he'd made um, even to the press about Jews. And um, Truman, he wouldn't allow a Jew come into the White House. I think it was mostly his wife. But, you know, there's, you know, th this was unfortunately, um, you know, something that, that should be looked at in the broad sense of, contributors to the to the to the Nazi Holocaust. I mean, why did the United States ban uh, Jews from leaving Europe in the Evian conference of 1940? They told South American countries who were willing to welcome Jews, you can't take them. They were called Roosevelt was on the phone telling them this, as was his State Department. Uh, but uh, one of the things that is commonly assumed about McCarthy is that he publicly named and destroyed the careers of innocent people, people who were not working for the Soviets, people who were not Stalinists in government. And yet, I don't think, I, I don't know if that's true. I mean, I think that most of his hearings, he protected people. He kept it behind closed doors. He didn't want, even going back to the list at Wheeling, West Virginia, he did not publicly uh, take testimony. And in fact, he actually, there's one incident, which I, I actually read about this in a book written by Ann Coulter, who I interviewed, where uh, Senator Hubert Humphrey put a bill before Congress to literally outlaw the Communist Party and make it a crime. And McCarthy stopped that because he felt that was going too far. But uh, did he actually name the names of innocent people publicly? Yes. So McCarthy, Ann Coulter's view of McCarthy is very interesting, and she calls it the Rosetta Stone of all the Democratic slur campaigns and the um, and that's interesting it's just not true and the I have a chapter called the body count where I look at nearly a dozen cases of people who actually took their own lives including two US senators whose children and biographers and others make a direct link to Joe McCarthy as the moving cause of that I look at hundreds of cases of people whose careers were destroyed because he did name them as communist agents when they weren't. Um, mm -hmm. I think that Joe McCarthy always used to say, point to one person who I've done that to. Well, it's not one, it's hundreds. And, the, and in his closed door hearings, um, 
you say that he did that to protect people going behind closed doors. I read 9,000 pages of transcripts that are now public of his closed door hearings. And I would say he had a more cynical motive in mind based on what he actually did, which was to use the closed door hearings as a tryout on how the witnesses would do. And ones that stood up to him and looked articulate or had compelling arguments never made it in front of the public cameras. Ones who were pushovers, who looked like they would cave under his pressure, um, some of whom may have deserved to be exposed and others of whom just caved, uh, were ones he brought in front of the cameras. He was not out there protecting anybody in those hearings. He was protecting himself and trying to, any sense of protecting the rights of anybody went out the door as soon as the public and the press were banned from those hearings. And I wanna take those one step further. And I hate to say this, mm -hmm. but it is proven in the records that I saw uh, the first look at his medical records from Bethesda Naval Hospital. When you read the transcripts of those hearings, Joe McCarthy was in the morning when he was sober, relatively reasonable. In the afternoon, after he had his favorite lunch of a burger, a raw onion and whiskey, he lost his patience much more quickly. And when you look at his medical records, they document the extent of his problem with alcohol. Mm. And I think he was, he had a problem with sobriety and drinking changed his behavior. And don't trust me, never trust a journalist. Uh, you trust the hearings that now anybody can go online and look at themselves and read through some of those 9,000 pages and you will see Joe McCarthy unhinged. Oh, no, I mean, I think you make the case very well that that he was clearly an alcoholic and uh, was not a good, not a nice guy, <laughs> you know, as a drink, he was mean, he became mean and nasty and irrational. Um, and he had a lot of enablers around him who, um, you know, basically covered it up mainly because they probably got something out of it. And that if he was naming names of people who are innocent, that's a disgrace. And, you know, that's contemptible. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, in a way, as you say earlier, it brought great discredit to, the otherwise good cause. The other problem with McCarthyism is that it created a paranoia in this country that went beyond the actual threat to the degree that all of a sudden, uh, you know, a liberal left-wing, uh, you know, high school teacher would be under suspicion. I mean, it would be, um, even though that started even before McCarthy. And, uh, you know, people would were suddenly, um, you know, becoming paranoid ab about this. And if somebody is a former communist, which they were so that's exactly, so that is true. Um, if you flirted with left-wing politics back in your college days, he would use it as a way to condemn you. And you're exactly right that he gets blamed for a lot of things that a lot of other people did. A lot of the things that are lumped into McCarthyism predated him, and yet he wanted to take credit for so much that was not stuff that he did that in a way, um, maybe there's a poetic justice that he, he is after the fact blamed for more than he was responsible for, but he was responsible for plenty. And he took the, the harshest critics that I interviewed for this book about Joe McCarthy were 
the most effective anti-communist of their era and of our era because he did undermine so much of what went on. And you used a word that I think I'd like to just spend one minute talking about, which was the word enabler. And McCarthy had endless enablers. His enablers were his fellow US senators, Democrats who didn't go after him because they saw that when you took on Joe McCarthy, he sent a bulldozer your way. Republicans who didn't go after him because even with the Eisenhower landslide of 1952, their margin in the Senate was razor thin and taking on and potentially bringing down one of their own was something they were anathema to do. His financial underwriters from Texas and other places were enablers. Dwight Eisenhower was an enabler. Eisenhower's brother Milton started whispering in his ear from the day that Dwight was elected at the end of 1952 saying, give up some of your popularity take on this bully. Dwight believed that he was a bully, told his staff that, but he waited for McCarthy to do himself in, and that meant a lot of people were really hurt. But the biggest enabler of all was you and me, was the American public that bought into his facile and easy answers when we should have known better. And demagogues are ultimately in a democracy a function of the voters who elect them and continue to let them do whatever damage they're doing. And I think that was it not Eisenhower himself who really eventually did pull the trigger against McCarthy. I mean, he, the whole idea, I think McCarthy wanted to subpoena conversations Eisenhower was having with the army during the army McCarthy hearings and uh, Eisenhower claimed executive privilege and would not cooperate. In fact, that same, argument would later be used by Richard Nixon in the uh, in the Whitewater and by President Donald Trump. And I think I think Obama used it too in Fast and Furious. And it became like a kind of a feature of, of assumed presidential power as a result. So that is true. And Eisenhower did help bring McCarthy down during the Army McCarthy hearings. McCarthy did what Eisenhower suspected he would eventually do. He took on an enemy that was too big to bully, and that enemy was the US Army. And during those hearings, partly Eisenhower developed the backbone that his brother had urged him to have earlier. The Army developed the backbone. But most importantly, what took Joe McCarthy down in the Army McCarthy hearings, he starts the hearings with a favorability rating of 50%. He ends the hearings with a favorability rating of 34%. And what brought him down was the TV camera. As you and I talked about at the beginning, people watch this guy and they said, he's not our champion, he's the town rowdy. And they, it was not Joe Welch, the lawyer who famously asked, have you no sense of decency? Mm -hmm. It was Joe McCarthy proving to all the TV viewers that he lacked that decency when they watched him day after day in the most heavily publicized congressional hearings in American history to that point. Somebody should have taken away the bottle of bourbon. Um, if they had done that, his wife tried, his buddies tried, and if somebody had been able to do that, we might have seen a very different Joe McCarthy at those hearings and elsewhere. And uh, you, you mentioned a really interesting wrinkle in that whole business of uh, the Army lawyer Welsh with the have you no shame, sir, that that was kind of a trap set up by him for McCarthy. He kind of, it, it's a classic, you know, bait and switch. He dangled the fact that this 
attorney for Hale and Door, Fred, uh, Fred um, Fisher. Fisher, had been a member of the National Lawyers Guild, which was a communist front, and that he had been already outed by the, the, the law firm months before the hearing. And they, you know, this probably that's where McCarthy heard of it, or one of his aides heard of it. So I and, think what Fred, you're exactly right. What I think, though, what what Joe Welch did was he had in his back pocket that line of have you no sense of decency and he was ready to use it. The only thing that he was better at than law was acting mm. and he was ready to use it at whatever moment McCarthy did something outrageous and he found that moment. Right. And it just uh, was, was a great pivotal piece of drama that, that um, kind of stuck in everyone's mind as, as a result of that, of that event. Now, of course, then McCarthy was censured by, by, the, by the Senate. It was the only the third time, in, I think, in American history that you had such a censure issued, uh, not because he was anti-communist or anything. It had more to do with, you know, because, he, because no, com, no senator wanted to go on record as being seen as, as, as supporting communism. But instead, it had to do with his lack of congeniality with the U.S. Senate and his lack of behavior, which was not proper, seen as improper in terms of how a senator was supposed to comport themselves. But the result of that was that McCarthy would be completely shunned by, by the U.S. Senate from all sides. Yes. So my only twist on what you said is to say that I think the reason his fellow senators brought him down, um, including 22 of the 44 Republicans, was because they didn't like him from the start they knew he was a bully, and they developed suddenly this courage when his numbers were down at 34% and knew they could safely take him on. And the only senator who we don't know uh, how he would have voted on that was a guy named Jack Kennedy, who was having back surgery and said he couldn't vote for that reason, but he never paired his vote with another senator from the other side who wasn't going to be able to be there and vote. He never said how he would have voted if he could have, and he showed exactly the opposite of what he was commending to the public in his famous book, Profiles and Courage. It was a profile on a lack of courage, and it was a payback for what we talked about earlier when Joe McCarthy stayed out of Massachusetts and helped him win his Senate seat, that he was never going to take on Joe McCarthy, even by telling his constituents, I was either for or against his censure. Well, I mean, you could also say that he was showing loyalty to a friend and doing so at political expense to himself. Yes, only the real political expense to himself would be to alienate one side or the other by saying, this is how I would have voted. And yes, he was showing loyalty, but the really loyal one in that family was Bobby Kennedy, who showed up at Joe McCarthy's funeral and basically was willing to be seen as a pal of McCarthy. And Jack told Bobby, stay the heck away from that funeral. But Bobby went anyway. Mm -hmm. All right. My guest is Larry Ty. The book is Demagogue. Whoops. That's not the right book here. <laughs> um, there it is. Demagogue. And it's, we're talking about Senator Joe McCarthy. This book is available everywhere. Um, Larry, you've written some really interesting books as well, including one about Superman that I'd like to get to. And um, Robert Kennedy as well. And um, you've done some great research. Um, you know, Satchel Page. You've covered some very interesting figures in your work. And um, you're a good historical biographer, that's for sure. Thank you. I really appreciate talking to you today. Now, I just want to finish by saying that in your last chapter, you compare um, 
Joe McCarthy to uh, President Trump. And, you know, again, I mean, I think that we can find demagogues on all sides. I mean, I would argue that a good example recently in a smaller way would be Congressman Adam Schiff walking around the country for two years holding up a piece of paper. I have proof that Donald Trump is a Russian spy, never produced it. We've never seen it. He won't reveal it. He did the media. He manipulated his friends in the media for months and years. He would be appearing constantly, making this demagogic charge, I would suggest. And it's been largely proved to not be true by the Mueller committee. And then he launches the the perfect phone call, which are meetings behind closed doors, very much like the Trump uh, committee hearings, where they would audition people to go out publicly and make innuendo-type accusations against President Trump, people who never even seen Trump or talked to him, saying that he was, uh, you know, in collusion with the, with the uh, Ukrainians. So, you know, I'm just bringing that up to point out that there are plenty of demagogues to go around on all sides. And while, while certainly McCarthy had a hugely bigger effect on society, and that's what makes him worse, it's just worth noting that, that we can look to demagogues on, of various stripes. So while I wouldn't agree with your choice of Adam Schiff as an example of a demagogue, there's no question that demagogues come in the form of Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives. But I would also say the one who has borrowed Joe McCarthy's playbook most often and most effectively is President Trump. And there is that flesh and blood through line from Roy Cohn as McCarthy's protege to Roy Cohn as Trump's tutor, that to me is um, sort of takes the argument out of the hypothetical and says he really did learn from uh, Joe McCarthy. And Donald Trump says every time he gets into trouble, I wish I had a Roy Cohn by my side. And what I think he's really saying is I wish I had a Joe McCarthy by my side, but it would be unacceptable to say that. But we don't have to, we've agreed on so much today. We don't have to agree oh, no, on this last bit. That's too big a topic. Maybe we could do another program on that one because I completely be great. reject that. But anyway, okay. Larry, <laughs> thank yeah. you so much for joining me. It's a very interesting uh, conversation and I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot.